Hello and welcome to the podcast, Natalie Nahai in Conversation, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and the living world. I can't believe we've already reached the end of season 12, but we'll be back in spring after a short break to deepen our inquiry into how we might chart a path towards a more flourishing future for all. In the meantime, if you'd like the opportunity to meet in person and explore these themes in greater depth, I'd love to invite you to the Flourishing Futures Salon. This is an exciting series of intimate, curated, gastronomical evenings that combine locally sourced food and elegant wines with meaningful, thought-provoking conversation. If you'd like to attend the next gathering in London, please sign up at ffsalons.com to register your interest. When we have the next date scheduled, you'll receive a private invitation and a special listener's discount. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash in conversation. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this final episode of the season. For the last episode of the series, I speak with V, formerly known as Eve Ensler, distinguished American playwright, performer, and feminist, whose work and activism has positively impacted the lives of millions of women and people around the world. Renowned for her infamous play, The Vagina Monologues, a global phenomenon that has been published in 48 languages and performed in over 140 countries, V is also the author of The Apology, the New York Times bestseller I Am an Emotional Creature, the highly praised In the Body of the World, and her most recent book, Reckoning, which is just recently published. In 1998, V launched V-Day, a global activist movement to end violence against women and girls, which has successfully raised over $100 million for local anti-violence groups and supported more than 13,000 community-based programmes. Having founded One Billion Rising, the largest global mass action to end gender-based violence in over 200 countries, V is also the co-founder of The City of Joy, a revolutionary centre for women survivors of violence in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, alongside Christine Schuler Describer and 2018 Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Dennis Mukwege. V's groundbreaking work has earned her many accolades, including the Isabel Stevenson Award at the 2011 Tony Awards, and she has been named among Newsweek's 150 Women Who Changed the World and The Guardian's 100 Most Influential Women. Through her work and activism, V continues to shape the dialogue around social justice, women's rights, and our relationship with and as part of nature, and her creativity and fierce commitment to improving the lives of women worldwide continues to impact and inspire new generations of activists and artists. As someone whose own life was touched by the vagina monologues back in the day when I was at university, this was such a privilege to be able to be in conversation with V, and I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. V, it's a pleasure to be in conversation with you today. How are you? I'm good, and I'm very happy to be talking to you from Paris. It's great to see you. <laughs> you too. It looks beautifully lit where you are. Is it sunny right now? Yeah, the sun just came out after days of rain, so it's like a joyous moment. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome relief. So um, I would love to kick off our conversation today by asking you what you sense or imagine is going on in the global human psyche right now. Mm. I think it's a it's a pretty huge moment of grief, of trauma, of of deep sorrow. Um, I can everywhere I've been on this trip, I can just feel how, you know. I think what we're watching in real time the the, the killing of children, thousands of children, um, you know, the death of 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 the Israelis at the, you know, who lived on the kibbutzim, the peace activists. I think, you know, what we're, I think what we're feeling as a world is like we're kind of in this wound that is just being exploded. And I know for me, I haven't slept really since October 7th. I feel, mm. you know, um, I, I just know for me, I longing for a ceasefire to stop 
the killings, to stop the bombings, to stop, to return the hostages, to, to, to come to a moment of peace where we can begin to examine and look at how we're going to move forward in a way where other people, more people don't die, you know? Yeah. Yes, it's a very raw and painful place and complicated in the face of all of the complexity and, I mean, there's so many factors at play and political fact, like, well, you know probably better than I do. But I wonder, in the face of all that, if we were to envision what flourishing could look like, what does flourishing mean to you? What's your take on that? Well, I think one of the things I'm addressing in Reckoning is that we have to look at where does violence come from? What are the seeds of violence? What are the roots of violence? Not to justify it, but to understand it. And I think in the case of Palestine, we're talking about years of occupation, years of people in Gaza living in open-air prisons without ability to move or travel or work or have a life being mm -hmm. occupied. Same in the West Bank of living with checkpoints and walls and really being second-class citizens and having no way out and no exit. So, of course, violence is going to be a response to that because when people don't have a way to live or breathe or, you know, that's... And I think one of the things I've certainly seen in my lifetime is, because um, I spend a lot of time thinking about violence, that's all I really do mm -hmm. think about in many ways, is that if we don't look at the roots of it, if we don't look at where it begins, if we don't look at our role in escalating it, uh, even our indifference is a, is a form mm -hmm. of escalation. And I think we are given an opportunity right now, everywhere in the world, to look at what's happening in Palestine and Israel, but as 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 really a way of looking at all of the situations in the world and where has colonialism played a role in leading to violence? Where has racism played a role in leading to violence? Where has, what are the things that have generated this world that feels in, in total eruption right now? Hmm. You know? Yeah. So let's talk about your new book, Reckoning, which is really extraordinary. It pulls no punches. And I think in, at least in my perspective, what we need now also is to see with clarity and not pull punches and not be afraid to look, perhaps especially when the crises we face are so entangled and overwhelming. And so maybe let's start by talking about what reckoning means for you, because it's a bold title for a book. Let's, let's start with that. What is it? What's reckoning? Well, I think um, the book really happened and began to grow during the pandemic, during COVID, when those of us who were privileged who didn't have to be doing frontline jobs where we were out in hospitals, like the amazing nurses and doctors who were saving so many lives without any in, in protections in America at any rate, you know, who were being forced to wear garbage bags as uniforms. Um, I think those of us who were shut down and locked in were kind of pushed into this kind of involuntary um, self-scrutiny mm. where we had to really look at our lives and and, and our memories and nostalgia and just really examine ourselves in ways we had really not had time for because our lives were speeding by, you know, so quickly. And yeah. for me, there was a deep, obviously, personal reckonings looking at my life in ways like how could I have done things better and where could I, you know. But there was also in America, like this, this great political reckoning. There were many reckonings going on. One the reckoning that we didn't have a health care, a health system that was supporting the majority of people, particularly for black and brown and poor people who were dying at three times the rates as white people. We didn't have um, a health care system. And then there was the horrible moment of George Floyd with that, you know, with that police officer's knee on his neck, those diabolical public minutes where we witnessed his death. And that gave birth to this incredible reckoning about police violence towards black people and the history of that and racism in America and white supremacy, which just exploded on the streets, which felt like a very positive thing. Like we were in the middle of this great upheaval and, mm. and movement and people in the streets. And so it felt like there were all these reckonings happening where we were looking at history and looking at how we had gotten here and, and what led to where we were. And I felt like, well, what could I do to be 
you know, what could, what could my offering be to this moment of reckoning? And so that's mm-hmm. why I wrote and decided I was going to write pieces, but also put my work together under the auspices of reckoning to see how I could contribute to this moment. So it really began with looking at like, what are the themes of ways that I've reckoned and what have I reckoned with over my lifetime? And I began to kind of weave that story together. Mm. And one of the things that you mentioned the last time we chatted, and it really captivated me, I mean, you clearly, you've always had a way with words, but you mentioned something around the wound is the portal mm-hmm. or a portal. Mm-hmm. That's a very evocative phrase. Can you Can you talk a bit more about what that means for you? Well, I think sometimes we're really afraid and we're almost taught not to go near the pain, yeah. like where it's yeah. painful, stay away. Yeah. And my experience has taught me if we move towards the wound, if we move towards where it's painful, there is often a doorway there. Um, but you have to just be willing to survive going through it a little bit before the door opens, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is how do we help each other be strong enough and be faithful enough that if you get to the wound, there will be a door that opens and you can get to the other side. Mm-hmm. And I think my experience has always been like in in thinking about my past or sitting with women around the world who have been through some of the worst atrocities that, you know, just being present, just listening, just being there so women can tap into the pain, the worst, and they could be held or they could be seen or they could be heard in that moment allows them to turn that pain into something else. Mm -hmm. And so they're not caught by that pain because if we don't feel the pain, we become in some ways, um, you know, controlled by it, Yeah, right? It it starts to determine our lives in, in very specific ways. And I think also there's something around when we don't name it and we don't allow ourselves to meet it, even though we might feel like we're shut off from it and we're safe, it can it can create situations again, or we can create situations again and again when we're invited to make contact with and heal that that part or that pattern or whatever. And we don't take up the mantle, we don't cross that threshold. What have you found in your journey confronting these wounds that has been helpful to you in, in having the courage to first of all perceive, see, or sense these painful places, these wounds, and then meet them? Like, are there things that you found helpful when you were just starting out? Because I think often it's that first step that can feel so unbearable. Where do we go first? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, you can't do it alone, yeah. right? You need to have support. You need to have either therapists, or you need to have friends, or you need to have a group, or you need to be in political movements, mm-hmm. so that whatever you're going through, you're not alone in that in that discovery in that awakening in that in that journey right because it's too painful to do it alone mm-hmm. and i think we often want to stop and we also want to run and we think i've had enough <laughs> i don't want to so you need you need someone to accompany you mm-hmm. and to be your you know to be your friend on that journey and and to be with you when it gets really really hard and um and i think the other thing is to is how do you do it where you can dip in and dip out so you don't completely overwhelm yourself. It yeah. takes time. You don't do it all at once. You know, you 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 clean up a bit, then you clean up a bit more, then you, you know, take a break and you clean up a bit more. And over time you begin to just excavate and 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 really get rid of what needs to be gone. But you don't have to do it in a way which completely overwhelms you and 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 creates another form of violence towards yourself you know yeah that kind of i should be okay by now i need to go you know yeah, through it exactly it takes whatever it takes yeah so something else that i'd like to, to 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 ask you about as part of this journey towards wholeness perhaps let's say is the role of apology which you have written extensively and beautifully about what is the role or what are the roles of apology or imagined apologies in healing the wounds that we carry and our relationships to others? Mm, Such a good question. Um, Well, you know, before I wrote the apology, um, I think I had waited all my life for my my father to apologize to me. I I kind of dreamed that before he left this world, he would wake up and come to his senses and understand the harm he had caused me. And then that didn't happen. Mm. And then I waited years and years after he passed for that same thing to happen and it didn't happen. And I finally started listening to all these men who've been called out in Me Too, mm. who 
were in theory made to see things they had done to harm women. And I waited for them to make public apologies, to come forward, to show how they had done work on looking at themselves or doing self-investigation or stripping away layers in themselves to understand why they would have done what they did. And I didn't see any of that. As a matter of fact, I didn't see one man publicly apologize. And I found that shocking, really. Mm -hmm. And then I started to investigate, like, where have men apologized for sexual abuse in human history? And I couldn't find any public apologies. And so I started thinking, wow, there must be something about the non-apology that keeps patriarchy in its place, right? Like, you know, men are taught from a very young age not to apologize, that it's a sign of weakness and vulnerability, and you don't want to give your hand away, and you don't want to give your cards away, and, you know, and, and so I thought, wow, maybe I should write my father's apology to me as a way of, first of all, climbing inside my father to understand, not justify, not justify, but to understand why he did what he did to me Mm. and to look at that in a way that could possibly begin to free me from being locked inside this narrative that I was in for so many years with my father, where I was either proving myself to my father or raging at my father or doing something, but he was, it was always his story I was in. You know, I was always a prisoner to his narrative. And writing that book was such a profound experience because I really learned what an apology is. That it's not um, a very quick, I'm sorry, it's a deep, spiritual, ongoing process where you have to go very far inside yourself to look at your own history, what created you, what went into making you a person who was capable of doing what you did, then what exactly did you do? Hmm. Like, what are the details, the details of what you did? Not a broad apology, but when you apologize specifically for harms done, the person you're apologizing to gets released from those harms, right? Because they're specific and you know that person has really thought about you and what they've done to you. And then what were the impact of those things on that person's life? And then, of course, the apology. And I think that process is is such a a magnificent process of change, of transformation uh, that you have to undergo Mm. in order to come to be a different kind of person. And if you do all those steps, you will have changed into somebody else that the person you're apologizing to can trust now. Because you'll have to have done such a uh, a deep self-examination. What do you think, and I'm sure there are many layers to this, but what do you think holds people back from leaning into apologies or even beginning to think that they might have something to apologise for? Is it a sense of bristleness, a sense of entitlement? Is it that if they reckon with what they've done, that it'll be so horrifying they won't be able to live with themselves? And it's kind of, there's, there's a lot of territory here to cover, but... I think it's a combination of all of those three, oh, you know? Uh-huh. I think that um, to to really apologize, well, first of all, you make yourself vulnerable and, you, and in theory you could be in trouble or something bad could happen to you. But I think more importantly, I think it's very hard to own and see ourselves as as having done something that is bad or immoral or mm. hurtful to another person. I think we have some deluded idea of ourselves most of the time, and, and all of us are terribly flawed. Mm. And all of us need to make apologies constantly because we are flawed, and we have so many aspects of ourselves that are difficult to manage, to tame, (laughs) to get right. I mean, that's why the apology, I think, is here as a way of allowing us to move through our imperfections. So I think part of it is like, if you have power and if you have privilege, you don't really need to apologize Mm. because you own the world, right? And why should you apologize? It just puts you in a weaker or vulnerable position where, you know, I, I do think that if, if men began to apologize in a, in a really deep way, and that inspired other men to apologize, the whole structure of patriarchy, I think, would begin to fall apart. Because I think it's really held up by the refusal of those in that system who have dominated or occupied or hurt or brought about violence or, or mm. done things to people, that, that, that not admitting it, you know, um, keeps everybody kind of stuck in the person who was victimized feeling like they're insane, yeah. you know, because no one ever admits it. And the person who's done it 
having all the power, you know? And I think what we have to move towards is that kind of vulnerability, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, it's curious. I, I often come back to this, which is this idea that there are so many different ways in which we either unintentionally or intentionally or a combination cause suffering to others. And you can look at it through various lenses. Like for me being a woman, I can look at it through the lens of misogyny or harms done in that way. And that's different too, but shares commonality and roots with other forms of power over and extraction and harm. And I think that there's something particularly poignant in this moment when we're thinking about the wars that are erupting, when we're thinking about brittle structures that are causing huge amounts of suffering, also to, to the men and boys and to people who grow up to become those who are dominating in systems of hierarchy, etc. There's something else that you've talked about also, which is which our relationship with this living earth of which we are a part. And that too, there again, we see these similar sorts of dynamics play out. So I wonder what your thoughts are around where our current relationship to the living earth is and what we could do to change how we relate on a fundamental level, because I think they're all intertwined. Yes, I do. Well, you know, after I, I wrote the apology as a book, I realized that I had an apology to make, which is in the reckoning to the earth, because mm -hmm. I feel for so many years, I was disconnected from the earth, as I was disconnected from my own body, because I think after you are raped, or after you're brutalized, you leave your body, because it's, yeah. it's a landscape of too much pain. And so I realized that I didn't have a relationship to the earth, that I shunned the earth. I was scared of the earth. I, I had a lot of fear of the earth because the earth was so alive and, and I didn't know how to live in that kind of aliveness. You know, I, 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 it was too terrifying. And I think after I got sick 12, about 14 years ago, I began to find my way back to the earth. Hmm. And when I did, I suddenly realized what I'd been missing my whole life, how disconnected I'd been from the source, from the mother, from from what was feeding us and what was nourishing us and what was keeping us alive. And it was this kind of horrifying realization. And I think, you know, writing that apology to the earth and realizing that I've been part of what's been destroying her by my lack of cherishing by my lack of awe, by my lack of gratitude, by my lack of, of, of devoting myself to protecting her and being a good steward to her and making sure she's well mm. and that I appreciate her. Um, it was a very profound thing. And um, I feel now that, you know, that connection I have to the earth, that I live in the woods now and I live with the birds <laughs> and I live with, you know, water and I live with sky and I live with I live with land and trees and trees and trees and it's changed me. It's, it's made me, um, it's made me much more compassionate, not only to the earth, but to human beings, because I understand I am part of that whole ecosystem and I'm mm -hmm. just one part of it. I'm not above it. I'm not below it. I'm just part of it. And my, you know, Animals don't destroy where they live. They don't destroy their air. They don't destroy their water. They don't, you know, they, they, they take what they need and they leave the rest, you know. And human beings have to be the same. And we have to wake up to what is our role, what is our place in that ecosystem, yeah. you know. There's so many places to go from here. Um, but I think the first place I'd like to dig a bit deeper is, is that sense of disconnection and reconnection within your own body, because this is something that in recent years, thankfully now, we're starting to hear more people talk about. So Gabor Mate, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, people who talk about um, ecosystemic approaches or the ecological self, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Like, there's so many people talking yeah. about ways in which to reconceive of what it means to be human and to, to offer a richer, fuller narrative rather than this sort of easy trope of, oh, you know, we are a plague. Or, like, there's so many unhelpful stories that we have come to believe that simply are not complete. Like that, yes, we can cause great damage, but we can also cause and co-create such fertility and flourishing um, and really be collaborators within that. So in terms of starting within our own bodies, whether people have experienced extraordinary pain or it's the day-to-day the -day humdrum disconnection from our bodies because we're spent on our laptops, you know, spending all that time in screens or virtual connection, what are some of the practices perhaps that you've encountered or principles that 
that you think are helpful ways to kind of get back into a more embodied place, into that relationship, somatic place of belonging to ourselves and to the world? That's such a good question. Um, I think for me, you know, writing has obviously helped me come back into my body and performing and anything where you move your body, where Mm. you dance or where you do any kind of practice like yoga or lifting weights or where you feel your body, where you're made to be aware of your body to see where you are in relationship Mm. to you, to yourself, like how much of you is actually in your body, how much of you is floating above your body. (laughs) But I I think, you know, and and how much of you um, and what parts of your body aren't you occupying? Like where are the parts that have been traumatized and where are the parts where you had to leave yourself because it's too scary to be in that part of your body. And and I think the other part, I think, you know, um, I think sex is really helpful. I, I, I always love that song, Sexual Healing. It's been my ringtone for years. <laughs> Amazing. I think that beautiful, loving, mutual, consensual sex um, with, with people, you know, um, between people can really heal and really bring you back into your body in a way that very few things can. I mean, I think it's really important. I think dancing's really important. I think really spending time in nature. Like I know for me, when I feel disconnected and I feel separated from myself, I go into the woods and I walk, I lie down, I hug trees, <laughs> I, I sit and I try to feel where I am and remind myself that I am this, that there is no separation between us. And when I get into the body of nature, I get into to my own body. It begins to happen. Um, those are some of the practices. That sounds so good. I've just been reading, I'm reading them back to front. I don't know why I started with the final book and then I've worked my way to the first one, but I'm reading a wonderful book called The Salt Path by Raina Wynn, mm. which tracks sort of the, the journey that a couple go on. They lose their house. The man is diagnosed with a life-ending illness and they, they walk. They decide to take the great, south, the great South Coast path across the UK. And there's this this passage that I literally finished reading with my coffee this morning, which talks about this encounter with another woman who's walking her dog. And she looks at them and she says something along the lines of, I can see that you are now enmeshed in nature. That can never be undone. Like there's something of you that has lived in the rain, in the sleet, with the stones, with the birds, like all of the... And there is something rugged and painful and beautiful and transcending about that. And, And yet so many of us find it really hard to really put ourselves into contact with nature in a way that isn't somehow sterilised. I speak for myself, you know, I'm terrible in the cold and in extreme heat. <laughs> I'll go and spend some time in the yeah, forest, yeah. but within a range of comfort. And, I, and I'm thinking, this isn't that helpful. At a certain point, you're talking about the, the amount of aliveness, the sheer vitality of life in the earth, yeah, there being yeah. perhaps an overwhelming quality to it. Like, How do we find our way back to that feral, glorious place? Yes. That rewilding place where we're wild again, yeah. yeah. Without sort of over-glamorizing it as well, because I mean, there's death and there's horror too, but, you know. No, exactly. <laughs> but I think I think patriarchy so demonized the earth, right? I mean, what are the lines at the end of Genesis, like, go and have, you know, God set them out to have dominion over the earth, to control the earth, to tame the earth. Right. And that was kind of what we were brought up believing, that our, our mission was not to become one with the earth, not to serve the earth, not to understand that the earth was everything yeah. and that we were here because of the earth, but to go and control the earth. And I think that is what we really have to change in our head. Like, that's the mindset we have to change. And I think part of it is to do it in doses, <laughs> You know, to to sit, to go and say, I'm going to go to the woods and I'm going to spend a night there. Or I'm going to go to the woods and I'm going to just walk for 12 hours and see what happens to me. Or I'm going to go and get lost in the woods mm. and see when I want to come out or just or, or whatever it is. Or just to go and go to the ocean and put your body half in and half out and lie there with your hand, hair in the sand and your your feet and your half of your torso in the ocean to begin to feel what it feels to be fish and what it feels to be mermaid and what it feels to be part of, of a sea creature, to imagine your way into it, to know that, you know, we all come from the sea, we come from the water, right? And, and to 
begin to see those parts of ourselves and get out of this hierarchy that somehow humans are at the top of this ladder and other everything's below mm-hmm. us. But in fact, every single thing that is here is necessary and made to serve something else, which is made to serve mm-hmm. something else. And we're all part of that story, not here to dominate it and tame it and have dominion over mm-hmm. it. So let's talk about imagination a bit, because that's something which is so important. And I find that at least when I get into a stressed, anxious or fearful space, my imagination can be my own worst enemy, right? It kind of goes down those repetitive, well-worn lines and constriction and contraction often happens. And so there are these moments when instead of contracting and getting rigid and hunkering down, if we have enough presence of I kind of want to say like heart mind or whatever. If we're present enough at the moment, we can choose to imagine differently. And so I wonder, what do you think is the role of imagination and perhaps beauty in the arts in creating these kind of portals back into a different kind of life, a different kind of system, um, a different kind of relating? I think imagination is everything. You know, I think if we can't imagine the world we want to live in, if we can't imagine a future we want to walk into, we can't actually create it. And I think, unfortunately, part of what we spend so much time doing in our lives is resisting all the violence, all the oppression, all the ways people are trying to subsume and take away our rights, all the ways people are trying to undermine us and make us laugh, rather than spending our time creating a world and creating a vision of a world where we want to live. And I think art, the function of art is to both make us aware of where we are and to feel where we are, but also to begin to catalyze our imaginations so that we can begin to see another way of being here and living here. And even if it feels hokey, and even if it feels a little sappy at first, just to begin to say, like, what is the world we want to live in? What are the qualities of the world? What what are the conditions of the world? What are the ethics of that world? Mm-hmm. What rules would we all agree to? that would would make us want to wake up in the morning, would, would make us want to be involved with each other if we were actually fighting for a world where people were loved, where, where there was no hierarchy between people, where some people didn't matter less mm-hmm. than other people, where everybody's story mattered, where we were, we all got to live with food and a house and education and well-being and clean water and a very small, um, you know, minority of people didn't own all the resources where the rest of the people were starving and struggling. I mean, what what is the world that we want? And I think it's an exercise we all need to do regularly in our personal lives, but also in the general bigger picture so that we can begin to create yeah. that world, right? I, I sometimes think um, I spent so much of my life ending violence, fighting violence, and and the last this last part of my life, I want to spend my time creating a vision, creating a world that feels so delicious and so divine and so so inviting that people are like, oh, I don't want that world. I want this world. I want to move over here. So what what do we do to create that world? Have you come across the work of Rob Hopkins, who wrote a book from What Is to What If? No, no, no. I think maybe I should connect you. He has a wonderful podcast yeah. from What If to What Next. And he has a very resonant take, you know, as, as what you just described to this, this sense of how do you plug people back into a sense of longing? Mm. And that's it. It's that yearning for something where yeah. most of us have experienced pockets of joys in our life. And I think if you've got even one or two experiences of that, there's some kind of reference point, some place in the inner territory that, that you can look to and go, I know what that feels like. I want to expand that, grow that and, and go from there. And there's a sense of what would it look like, feel like, sound like, sense like to wake up Mm. in a future which is different to where we are now, where maybe there aren't all of the problems um, having been solved, but there are these qualities that you're speaking about of kinship and Mm -hmm. sufficiency and community. And so I'm curious then, one of the things that I think is quite tricky is Trying to navigate, you know, you mentioned the resistance part, like we're having to do so much work in resisting rights being taken away. I know you're a citizen of the US and there there's very particular rights that have been taken away in recent history. So there's a lot of time that needs to be dedicated to preventing bad things from happening, resisting those things, and then also the kind of reconnecting ourselves. And one of the other things that I think is quite tricky is 
trying to make our way through the noise and the disinformation and AI generated, like there's so much now also in a virtual space Mm -hmm. that has real world impacts. What's your take on how we can navigate that as well as the complicated physical realities that we face? Mm. You know, it's one of the things I think a lot about when I think about One Billion Rising, our global dance campaign, because I feel like how do we do art and activism together? How do we create beauty and create something which allows people to feel their desire for love, for another world, for connection, at the same time as we're resisting and Hmm. refusing what's undermining us and destroying us. And I think what I've seen in this dance campaign is that people dance and they do artistic events and they have these beautiful, beautiful happenings and festivals But what they're doing is they're doing it for a purpose, either to end homelessness or to to fight for workers' rights and better pay or, you know, to end sex trafficking. Like there there is a story at the end of it, but they're creating something beautiful, something communal, something celebratory, something joyful in the path of it. Mm. And I see it really at City of Joy, which is this beautiful place that I was privilege to co-found with um, Christine Schuler-Descriever and Dr. Dini McQuege in the Congo in Eastern DRC, which is a revolutionary center and a sh- sanctuary for women who have been horribly abused sexually um, during the war or in their lives. And women come and they're very broken and very, um, you know, they've been through horrible atrocities. And the whole point of City of Joy, which is totally run by the Congolese, is to heal people through therapy, through dance, through art, through communications, through education, through learning their rights, through working in the on this beautiful farm that we have. So they, they learn permaculture and they connect with the land and they heal themselves through the connection to the land. And it's so joyful there. It is so joyful there. People who have suffered the worst atrocities on the planet dancing the whole day, doing theater the whole day, connecting the whole day, and transforming their pain into power. And it's really taught me that those two things can happen at the same time, that we can be both resisting what we don't want, but we can be creating what we do want by the way we're resisting, right, in our resistance, and modeling what we want in our resistance, which is such a beautiful thing to be part of. That's very powerful. I'm led to sort of now in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, well, when we have examples, shining examples of such radically different ways of healing coming together, what are some of the ways that we can weave this in to things like, I'm thinking schools, education, because Mm. if we can see such extraordinary healing and impact for people who've been through some of the worst suffering imaginable, what's possible if we bring some of those qualities, approaches, strategies into education systems into local communities or civic centres. Are there examples that you've come across where there are elements of these things happening within kind of the, the broader existing paradigm? Well, I think the people who are working on emotional education and understanding that emotions can't be separate hmm. from from what we're learning, like emotional intelligence and how do we develop emotional intelligence and how do we understand that how we treat each Mm. other in the classroom and listen to each other and support each other is just as important as what we're learning, like they're not separate. I think bringing art into education is so critical and, and, and having children create and supporting their creativity. I mean, in America, art I don't even know that most schools even have art anymore. Like, like it's seen as such a, um, the thing that comes after as a thing, as, as opposed to the thing that should come first. And I think really encouraging creation and creativity in people so that people can use their imaginations and develop imagination because the imagination is the root of everything. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really at the core of how we, reimagine this world and 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 build a world where we're where many 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 more people get to prosper and live outside of war outside of poverty outside of racism outside of colonialism outside of all those things that are so destructive mm-hmm. i think also how we bring up boys is so important that that we stop seeing we stop treating boys as these inhuman beings who don't get to feel and don't get to cry and have to know everything and can't express doubt and we allow them both the 
the strength of their natures and the, the softness of their natures and 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 to be full tender um fierce creatures as opposed to denying them their humanity which is the way so many boys are brought up yeah. and then we're surprised when they're violent or we're surprised when they're aggressive when we've robbed them of all those things w- which would prevent them from being aggressive yeah. and violent yeah i'm thinking also about um so obviously i'm born in the uk of british culture and how there are so many cultural tropes around you know the stiff upper lip and and it's particularly yeah. levied against Boys. And then we wonder why so many of the people that end up in leadership positions seemingly display very little empathy, because if you're not shown any, how on earth are you going to model that in yourself to others? Exactly. Another thing that you've spoken about is when and how we use our voices and when and how we share platforms and hold other people up so that their voices can also be heard. And this is something that I would love to talk with you about because it's, it's really important. So can we talk a little bit about, in your experience, how we gauge how to help one another. Mm-hmm. Because there is something around creating platforms, showing solidarity. And as someone who has been a pioneer for many years, I remember first coming across the Vagina Monologues in a play in Brighton years ago and being blown away. I was like, oh my God, this voice, finally I get to hear someone who's like punchy and fierce and tender. And, and there's such power in hearing a resonating voice who pulls no punches that gives many folk who are otherwise silent, like myself at the time, a sense of hope and solidarity. So like, given that that's something that that you've elicited in me, and I'm I'm sure millions of others, how do you conceive a voice in sharing? Well, I think that's such a good question, because I think (laughs) I don't really love the word ally, because Uh there's, there's somehow an implicit hierarchy in there, like, I'll help you with your problem. And I don't see the world like that. I see every problem is all of our problem. Mm. So I'll give you a really good example of that. I knew like two years ago, like the Vagina Monologues has been like the centerpiece for V-Day, our movement for many, many years. People have been performing it. And then it it just got very clear to me that it was time to have another piece be centered in our movement. And it was at the time of, of you know, really clear time that we were going through this reckoning and this upheaval in understanding of racism in America. And so what I what I decided to do was I invited this wonderful woman, this brilliant writer, Aja Monet, who's a blues poet and a visionary. And I said, what would you what would you think about creating a new piece um, by black women for black women that could be the centerpiece mm for for v-day and she was like really thrilled about it and she hired her (laughs) own team of young amazing black women who work with her and they put out a call and they got 900 women who sent in poems and pieces and stories from Mm. around the world and they created this stunning soundscape that we're just about to launch which is the voices of black women around the world which is now going to be the next piece we put out in our movement amazing and it feels like just beautiful. It feels it. It feels like the next evolution of what we should be doing. And mm. I didn't feel like I was helping. I felt like I needed that to help him for, help happen for me. I needed to know those voices and hear those voices. I needed I needed to be part of that evolution, you know, and that understanding. And and so you know, we launched it in Ghana um, last December, and four hundred people came and lay outside with headphones and eye masks and listen to these amazing stories. And it was just magnificent. And I feel like those of us who have privilege and those of us who have had the ability to have our voices be heard, certainly at this point in my life, what I want to be making sure I'm constantly doing is like, when I'm at the table, who's missing at the table? And how do I make sure everybody's at the table? And, And then how do I use any privilege I have or any platforms I have to make sure other people share those platforms and are are present in those platforms. And that just feels like a delight. Mm. You know, it feels like, again, what is the world we want? The world I want is where no one's excluded, where everyone's voice matters, where everybody gets to tell their story, because we know whose stories get told. Those people are often the people who run the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and determine what happens yeah. in the world. It's an interesting one because I think there's, and I, I definitely relate with you when, when we talk about allies, like I, especially if I was thinking about times that I've had to confront, you know, complicated situations where I've been on the back foot and other people have stepped in to help me. 
The help I've most appreciated is when someone's stood beside me to help. And yeah, and that's the kind of help that I would like to think that would be nice to extend to others. Yeah. Yes, it, it's it's solidarity. It's like being wing, wind at someone's back. It's being by their side. It's 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 not saying I'm going to tell you how to do it, and I'm going to have an idea for you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna rescue you or save you because nobody needs saving. People need people need solidarity. People need to be seen. People need um, whatever they need, and they can ask for it. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but it's not up to you to determine what people need. It's up to other people to determine what they need. And your role is just to shut up and serve. You know, <laughs> like to be there in a way where you can just listen and hear and help in any way that you're being called to lift someone up. Yeah. And and I think part of that requires being still and being quiet and not injecting yourself, you know, and not thinking you have the best idea in the room and not <laughs> yes. thinking you know how to tell people what they need, but really trusting that people often, if not always, know what they need. Yeah. And you just have to be there to have them say it to you so you can join them in whatever that that story is. And I think to that point, there's definitely something there around being really present and able to listen deeply and then shut up and listen. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of a lot of us are not trained how to do that. And it, it can really take effort to listen well, like nonviolent communication. It, there are methodologies for helping us to tune into a different space and to approach things from a less, I don't want to be too sort of like, you know, less egotistical, but less I, me, self-centered perspective and more mm-hmm. let's move into the real discovery of what is it that's going on, that curious stance, as opposed to the wanting to deliver knowledge stance. Or assuming we know, just assuming mm. we know yeah. answers <laughs> yeah. or we know people or we know anything. Like so much of the older I get, the more I realize how little I know. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's like, like you get to this point where you're suddenly like, what do I know? Like, I just want to now open my brain and open my consciousness and 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 in a way be lost and let yeah. people and situations and circumstances inform me and teach me now. You know, I, I think when you're younger, you're so scared not to know because yeah, you're going to be found out as being stupid or being found out as being. And I think when you get older, you get some amount of security to say you actually don't know. <laughs> Yeah, right. You're not getting tested for every few years to, you know, make sure your performance or return. No, exactly. And so we talked a little bit about art moving people. I know that you've also got a musical piece on climate change coming out. Mm-hmm. I would love, if you're willing to, to hear a little bit more about that, because that sounds wonderfully exciting. Well, I can't talk too much about it because it's in the making. But, okay. you know, I think what we're trying to create is an emergent piece that really speaks to our times. And we're in this deep, we've been in this process for four years of writing these songs, Mm. which I love. The songs are, I think, really beautiful. But we're finding the form of this piece that isn't a, quote, musical, but is actually hopefully evolving in real time that is going to kind of align itself with the climate catastrophe and with climate change and with where we are to help give people energy to, to express what people are really feeling collectively so that people don't feel alone. Mm. It, it's anthemic to charge people so they feel they can fight <laughs> and also to express sorrow and to express people feeling like it's the end of the world and feeling like maybe it's the beginning of the world and maybe all <laughs> the things that we're feeling at this time in music with some text scattered throughout, but just something that's becoming, you know, I, I, the title, I I think becoming is in the title. It's becoming like what, what is climate change doing to us that is evolving us as human beings at this moment, pushing us to a new state of consciousness to figure out how we're going to live and survive and transform in the face of it. This is very exciting. Do you have a sense of when it might emerge itself or... I think next fall we'll have our first presentation of it in the States, yeah. And so if people want to find out more about that particularly? They can definitely go to uh, my website, eveensler.org. Okay, fantastic. So before we move to the last couple of questions, I want to ask you more about this iconic idea of eating the apple as something which is around 
awakening to your deeper self. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Because it's, yes. to me, it just makes me think of Adam and Eve. And actually before Eve, there was Lilith and then, you know, the serpent in the garden and these beautiful imaginaries that we've since demonized that for me are just so replete with life and possibility. Absolutely. Anyway, I mean, it's just very exciting. <laughs> well, you know, for so many years when my name was Eve, it was it was a bit of a burden because obviously Eve brought sin into the world and... right. Everything bad. It was the downfall, right? I mean, um, and it was a really, it was a hard name to carry around as a six-year-old, right? But I always felt there was something, I always felt the story of the serpent, there was just something there that was just off, right? And then I was studying a lot about plant medicines and psychedelics and mushrooms, and I saw this 13th century painting of a snake wrapped around a mushroom tree oh. like it was like wrapped around this tree with mushrooms and um even though mushrooms don't grow on trees but we know they they grow out of the ground right and mm. there was adam and there was eve and there was the snake offering this mushroom interesting and i thought wow <laughs> and then i started re realizing that god had said if you eat of this tree you will be like me you will see everything. You will come into mystical, divine knowing, mm -hmm. right? And I thought, well, of course that, of course it was about like eating mushrooms and eating, you know, something psychedelic. So I started to really imagine what if that were true? What if Eve ate the app? Like she was in like a kind of a meme garden, like a fake garden, mm -hmm. which was the father's garden, which he had created based on the original garden of the mother, but it was a meme right? A kind of, um, and that she saw that the snake offered her the mushroom, it wasn't an apple, it was a mushroom. And she ate it. And she returned to the mother's garden. And she saw what it had been like before patriarchy, where we were connected, where we were all um, living as one with nature, with each other, where, where sex wasn't sin, where we can just go down the list, which is the last essay in the book of what I imagined it to be. And that she was so generous. She went to Adam, you have to eat this. You have to see what I've seen. You know what I mean? You have to wake up. You have to get that this isn't the real garden. The real garden was, was before this garden, before patriarchy dominated us and before patriarchy shut down our sexuality and killed off our intuition and destroyed what we truly know and what we really want and what we really feel and made us believe we were powerless and mm -hmm. took us out of our bodies and took us out of community and detached us from the earth. And, and I think there are all kinds of ways we can get back to that knowing. And one is obviously eating plant medicines because they expand your consciousness and you touch into that reality and you suddenly go, oh my God, this is in us. This is just is inside of us, inside our consciousness. It's It's been there forever and we need to expand it and, and catalyze it and, and, and make more of it so that we can live into it. And the other thing is, how do you keep living in community with people? And how do you keep dreaming with people? And how do you love people in a way that inspires you to begin to create a world where you feel safe, yeah. where you feel inspired, where you feel, where you feel loved, where you feel you can grow and you can evolve as opposed to always feeling like you're on the defensive and you're a victim and you have to always be fighting and, you know, there with your fist up because someone's coming at you. Like there's another way we could be living here. And I think eat, the, eat the fucking apple means just that, like eat it, eat it. Like let's, let's find all the ways we can open the doors to that consciousness so we can live lives of love and live lives of connection and care care, just care, caring about each other, caring about the earth, understanding that every single person on this planet is traumatized in one way or another. If you weren't traumatized, you know, in a way where it came right at you, you witnessed it, or you heard about it, or you, or your country participated in it, which makes you mm -hmm. part of that, or you, or you as a white person are part of a history of, of enslaving people and creating genocide on people and just colonizing people. It's in all of us. So how do we live in a way where we help um, exhume the trauma, transform the trauma into, into healing, into love, into, the, into something else where we're not going to have a few, very few people determining our lives and taking us 
to wars that could annihilate the planet. Yeah. Eat the fucking apple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably going to be the title for this podcast. So I'm going to ask you two closing questions for this part. And the first one is, and I, and I imagine it touches on some of the territory that we've already covered, but I am keen to get a way to come back around to this, which is how do you orient yourself towards life and beauty and wholeness and vitality when things get tough? Mm. It's such a hard question because these last months since October 7th, um, first with the terrible murders and then with this horrible, horrible, horrible bombing and killing of children and women, um, I, I just felt sickened. I felt I felt like I don't want to be in this world if this is how human beings are, are acting and accepting acting and, and that the, there would be somebody in the world who didn't want a ceasefire. There would be somebody who didn't want to see the, the ending of, to see stopping of murdering people straight out and depriving people of water and depriving people of fuel and depriving, you know, babies of, of incubators who are trying to survive, who are premature. and and it just feels so devastating to me. And, mm. and I really haven't been finding a lot of joy. You know, I mean, I've been traveling on this book tour, and I've been happy to be in community with people talking about. But you know, what happened this week is a, a few of my friends showed up in Paris, oh. because we all just needed to be together, yeah. because we're all just feeling so devastated. And there was just something last night, we were all at a, at a, at a dinner together. And it was so moving because we were all feeling such sorrow, but we were together and we were sharing our grief and we were sharing our sorrow and we were brainstorming about all the things we could do to change things. And I woke up this morning and I had life in me again. And <laughs> the only thing I really know how to do when I feel this level of, of sorrow, outrage, horror is join forces with people who share that. And, and see ways that we can imagine and create a world and, and a situation and what, what can we put out, how can we help, how can we use and, and see whatever this experience is to begin to create another path so that it doesn't happen again, you know? Yeah. Well, on that note, if people want to join your path and hear more about your work, we know about uh, your website, that any other resources or places you'd like people to check out? Well, please, if you want to do Risings, One Billion Rising happens every year. And now it's going on most of the year in a lot of places, but you can come to onebillionrising.org and you can create a rising wherever you are. To rise for this year, the theme is freedom. Mm. Like, where do you need to be free? What needs to be free? Where do you want to rise in your community? What kind of freedom? Um, you know, is it freedom for reproductive rights? Is it freedom to um, not be sex trafficked? Is it freedom to um, live without war? Is it freedom? Whatever it is, you can create it in your community, be, but be connected to a larger movement of solidarity and love that's now in 180 countries. You can support City of Joy in the Congo. You can support our beautiful house in Kenya that stops female genital mutilation. Um, and I just want to say, you know, the Surgeon General in America put out a report that loneliness is the main thing impacting mm -hmm. Americans right now. And I think it's true in the world right now. People are lonely. People are isolated. COVID took us inside and it took, we need to be together. We need to be together in our grief and we need to be together in our joy and we need to be together in our thinking and our dreaming about how we transform the way we're living our lives so that more people can live without fear and can live comfortably and can live with food and, and, and how we're going to take on the massive climate catastrophe that we're in the midst of, but without each other and without connection, that will be impossible. V, it's been inspiring talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation for me too. Thank you so much. Well, folks, that's a wrap. I've really loved putting this season together, and I hope you found our exploration into how we might envision and create a more flourishing future for all as thought-provoking and inspiring as I have. 
If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to me to read your support, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour our love and time and attention. I'll be taking a short break while we record season 13, and the podcast will be back in the spring with another set of stimulating conversations for you to dive into. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more about my work, head over to natalinahigh.com. You can explore additional books and resources at natalinahigh.com forward slash resources. And you can also sign up to join our in-person gastronomical gatherings at ffsalons.com. As always, my heartfelt thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next season.